the other day I came across a woman who was in a rush to buy a rich coconut cake to take on a visit to a nearby monastery. She had mentioned that the monks she was visiting only ate round food. Now, I am not one to be all self-entitled when it comes to spiritual deep divers, but it did get me thinking. I mean, a diet of pizzas and donuts and cookies and coconut cakes sounds good to me, like a fast track to enlightenment. But I'm really mentioning this only because I'm curious. Am I missing out on some ascetic round food movement? Have you heard of anything like this? Drop a line or leave a comment if it rings a bell. I'm genuinely curious about this one. Good evening. It's Wednesday, the 2nd of December, 2009, and it's Miet's Bedtime Story Podcast. The Interior Castle by Jean Stafford Pansy Vanaman Injured in an automobile accident Often woke up before dawn, when the night noises of the hospital still came in hushed hurry through her half-open door. By day, when the nurses talked audibly with the interns, laughed without inhibition, and took no pains to soften their footsteps on the resounding composition floors, the routine of the hospital seemed as bland and commonplace as that of a bank or a factory. But in the dark hours, the whispering and the quickly stilled clatter of glasses and basins, the moans of patients whose morphine was wearing off, the soft squeak of a stretcher as it rolled past on its way from the emergency ward. These suggested agony and death. Thus, on the first morning, Pansy had faltered to consciousness long before daylight, and had found herself in a ward, from every bed of which, it seemed to her, came the bewildered protest of someone about to die. A caged light burned on the floor beside the bed next to hers. Her neighbour was dying, and a priest was administering extreme unction. He was stout and elderly, and he suffered from asthma, so that the struggle of his breathing so close to her was the basic pattern, and all the other sounds were superimposed upon it. Two middle-aged men in overcoats knelt on the floor beside the high bed. In a foreign tongue, the half-gone woman babbled against the hissing and sighing of the Latin prayers. She played with her rosary as if it were a toy. She tried, and failed, to put it into her mouth. Pansy felt horror, but she felt no pity. An hour or so later, when the white ceiling lights were turned on and everything, faces, counterpanes and the hands that groped upon them, was transformed into a uniform grey sorder, the woman was wheeled away in her bed to die somewhere else, in privacy. Pansy 
did not quite take this in, although she stared for a long time at the new empty bed that had replaced the other. The next morning, when she again woke up before the light, this time in a private room, she recalled the woman with such sorrow that she might have been a friend. Simultaneously, she mourned the driver of the taxicab in which she had been injured, for he had died at about noon the day before. She had been told this as she lay on a stretcher in the corridor, waiting to be taken to the X-ray room. An intern passing by had paused and smiled down at her and said, "'Your cab driver is dead. You were lucky.' Six weeks after the accident, she woke one morning just as daylight was showing on the windows as a murky smear. It was a minute or two before she realised why she was so reluctant to be awake, why her uneasiness amounted almost to alarm. Then she remembered that her nose was to be operated on today. She lay straight and motionless under the seersucker counterpane, her blood-red eyes and her darned face stared through the window and saw a frozen river and leafless elm trees and a grizzled esplanade where dogs danced on the ends of leashes, their bundled-up owners stumbling after them, half-blind with sleepiness and cold. Warm as the hospital room was, it did not prevent Pansy from knowing as keenly as though she were one of the walkers, how very cold it was outside. Each twig of a nearby tree was stark. Cold red brick buildings nudged the low-lying sky, which was pale and inert, like a punctured sack. In six weeks, the scene had varied little. There was promise in the skies neither of sun nor of snow. No red sunsets marked these days. The trees could neither die nor leaf out again. Pansy could not remember another season in her life so constant, when the very minutes themselves were suffused with the winter pallor as they dropped from the moon-faced clock in the corridor. In the same way, her room accomplished no alterations from day to day. On the glass-topped bureau stood two potted plants telegraphed by far-away well-wishers. They did not fade, and if a leaf turned brown and fell, it soon was replaced. So did the blossoms renew themselves. The roots, like the skies, and like the bare trees, seemed zealously determined to maintain a status quo. The bedside table, covered every day with a clean white towel. The bedside table, covered every day with a clean white towel, though the one removed was always immaculate, was furnished sparsely with a water glass, a bent drinking tube, a sweating pitcher, and a stack of paper handkerchiefs. There were a few letters in the drawer, a hairbrush, a pencil, 
and some postal cards on which, from time to time, she wrote brief messages to relatives and friends. Dr. Nash says that my reflexes are ship-shape. Sick. And Dr. Rivers says the frontal fracture has all but healed and that the occipital is coming along nicely. Dr. Nicholas, the nose doctor, promises to operate as soon as Dr. Rivers gives him the go-ahead sign. Sick. The bed itself was never rumpled. Once fretful and now convalescent, Miss Vanneman might have been expected to toss or to turn the pillows or to unmoor the counterpane, but hour after hour and day after day she lay at the full length and would not even suffer the nurses to raise the headpiece of the adjustable bed. So perfect and stubborn was her body's immobility that it was as if the room and the landscape, mortified by the ice, were extensions of herself. Her resolute quiescence and her disinclination to talk, the one seeming somehow to proceed from the other, resembled, so the nurses said, a final coma. And they observed in pitying indignation that she might as well be dead for all the interest she took in life. Among themselves they scolded her for what they thought a moral weakness. An automobile accident, no matter how serious, was not reason enough for anyone to give up the will to live or to be happy. She had not, to come down bluntly to the facts, had the decency to be grateful that it was the driver of the cab and not she who had died. And how dreadfully the man had died. She was twenty-five years old, and she came from a distant city. These were really the only facts known about her. Evidently she had not been here long, for she had no visitors, a lack which was at first sadly moving to the nurses, but which became to them a source of unreasonable annoyance. Had anyone the right to live so one-dimensionally? It was impossible to laugh at her, for she said nothing absurd. Her demands could not be complained of, because they did not exist. She could not be hated for a sharp tongue, nor for a supercilious one. She could not be admired for bravery or for wit or for interest in her fellow creatures. She was believed to be a frightful snob. Pansy, for her part, took a secret and mischievous pleasure in the bewilderment of her attendants and the more they caught at her with offers of magazines, crossword puzzles, and a radio that she could rent from the hospital, the farther she retired from them into herself, and into the world which she had created in her long hours here, and which no one could ever penetrate nor imagine. Sometimes she did not even answer the nurse's questions. As they rubbed her back with alcohol and steadily discoursed, she was as remote from them as if she were miles away. She did not think that she lived on a higher plane than that of the nurses and the doctors, but that she lived on a different one, and that at this particular time, this time of exploration and habituation, she had no extra strength to spend on making herself known to them.
all she had been before, and all the memories she might have brought out to disturb the monotony of, say, the morning bath, and all that the past meant to the future, when she would leave the hospital, or of no present consequence to her. Not even in her thoughts did she employ more than a minimum of memory. And when she did remember, it was in flat pictures, rigorously independent of one another. She saw her thin, poetic mother, who grew thinner and more poetic in her canvas deck chair at Saranac, reading Lala Rook. She saw herself in an inappropriate pink hat, drinking iced tea in a garden so oppressive with the smell of phlocks that the tea itself tasted of it. She recalled an afternoon in autumn in Vermont, when she had heard three dogs' voices in the north woods, and she could tell by the characteristic minor key struck three times at intervals like bells from several churches that they had treed something. The eastern sky was pink, and the trees on the horizon looked like some eccentric vascular system meticulously drawn on coloured paper. What Pansy thought of all the time was her own brain. Not only the brain as the seat of consciousness, but the physical organ itself, which she envisaged romantically, now as a jewel, now as a flower, now as a light in the glass, now as an envelope of rosy vellum containing other envelopes, one within the other, diminishing infinitely. It was always pink and always fragile, always deeply interior and invaluable. She believed that she had reached the innermost chamber of knowledge, and that perhaps her knowledge was the same as the saint's achievement of pure love. It was only convention, she thought, that made one say sacred heart and not sacred brain. Often, but never articulately, the colour pink troubled her, and the picture of herself in the wrong that hung steadfastly before her mind's eye. None of the other girls had worn hats, and since autumn had come early that year, they were dressed in green and rusty brown and dark yellow. Poor Pansy wore a white eyelet frock with a lacing of black ribbon around the square neck. When she came through the arch, overhung with bittersweet, and saw that they had not yet heard her, she almost turned back. But Mr. Oliver was there and she was in love with him. She was in love with him, though he was ten years older than she, and had never shown any interest in her beyond asking her once, quite fatuously, but in an intimate voice, if the yodeling of the little boy who peddled clams did not make her wish to visit Switzerland. Actually... There was more to this question than met the eye, for some days later Pansy learned that Mr. Oliver, who was immensely rich, kept an apartment in Geneva. In the garden that day he spoke to her only once. He said, 
My dear, you look exactly like something out of Catherine Mansfield. And immediately turned, and within her hearing asked Beatrice Sherburn to dine with him that night at the country club. Afterward, Pansy went down to the sea and threw the beautiful hat onto the full tide and saw it vanish in the wake of a trawler. Thereafter, when she heard the clam boy coming down the road, she locked the door and when the knocking had stopped and her mother called down from her chaise long, Who was it, dearie? she replied. A salesman. It was only the fact that the hat had been pink that worried her. The rest of the memory was trivial, for she knew that she could never again love anything as ecstatically as she had loved the spirit of Pansy Vanaman enclosed within her head. But her study was not without distraction, and she fought two adversaries, Payne and Dr. Nicholas. Against Dr. Nicholas she defended herself valorously and in fear. But pain, the pain, that is, that was independent of its instruments, she sometimes forced upon herself adventurously like a child scaring himself in a graveyard. Dr. Nicholas greatly admired her crushed and splintered nose which he daily probed and peered at, exclaiming that he had never seen anything like it. His shapely hands ached for their knives. He was impatient with the skull-fracture man's cautious delay. He spoke of our nose, and said that we would be a new person when we could breathe again. His own nose was magnificent. Not even his own brilliant surgery could have improved upon it, nor could a first-rate sculptor have duplicated its direct downward line which permitted only the least curvature inward toward the end, or the delicately round lateral declivities, or the thin-walled, perfectly matched nostrils. Miss Vanaman did not doubt his humaneness or his talent. He was a celebrated man, but she questioned whether he had imagination. Immediately beyond the prongs of his speculum lay her treasure whose price he, no more than the nurses, could estimate. She believed he could not destroy it, but she feared that he might maim it, might leave a scratch on one of the brilliant facets of the jewel, bruise a petal of the flower, smudge the glass where the light burned, the envelopes, and that then she would die or would go mad. While she did not question that in either eventuality, her brain would, after a time, redeem its original impeccability. She did not quite yet wish to enter upon either kind of eternity, for she was not certain that she could carry with her her knowledge as well as its receptacle. Blunderer that he was! Dr. Nicholas was an honourable enemy, not like the demon, pain, which skulked in a thousand guises within her head, and which she often recklessly willed to attack her, and then drove back in terror. After the rout, 
Sweat streamed from her face and soaked the neck of her coarse hospital shirt. To be sure, it came usually of its own accord, running like a wildfire through all the convolutions to fill with flame the small sockets and ravines, and then, at last, to withdraw, leaving behind a throbbing and an echo. On these occasions, she was as helpless as a tree in the wind. But at the other times when, by closing her eyes and rolling up the eyeballs in such a way that she fancied she looked directly on the place where her brain was, the pain woke sluggishly and came toward her at a snail's pace. Then, bit by bit, it gained speed. Sometimes it faltered back, subsided altogether, and then it rushed like a tidal wave driven by a hurricane, lashing and roaring until she lifted her hands from the counterpane, crushed her broken teeth into her swollen lip, stared in panic at the soothing walls within her ruby eyes, stretched out her legs until she felt their bones must snap. Each cove, each narrow inlet, Every living bay was flooded, and the frail brain, a little hat-shaped boat, was washed from its mooring and set adrift. The skull was as fast as the world, and the brain was as small as a seashell. Then came calm weather, and the safe journey home. She kept vigil for a while, though, and did not close her eyes, but gazing serenely at the trees, conceived of the pain as the guardian of her treasure— who would not let her see it. That was why she was handled so savagely whenever she turned her eyes inward. Once this watch was interrupted, by chance she looked into the corridor and saw a shaggy mop slink past the door, followed by a senile porter. A pair of ancient eyes, as roomy as an old dog's, stared uncritically in at her, and a toothless mouth formed a brutish word. She was so surprised that she immediately closed her eyes to shut out the shape of the word, and the pain dug up the unmapped regions of her head with mattocks, ludicrously huge. It was the familiar pain, but this time, even as she endured it, she observed with detachment that its effect upon her was less than that of its contents— the by-products, for example, of temporal confusion and the bizarre misapplication of the style of one sensation to another. At the moment, for example, although her brain reiterated to her that it was being assailed, she was stroking her right wrist with her left hand as though to assuage the ache, long since dispelled of the sprain in the joint. Some minutes after she had opened her eyes and left off soothing her wrist, she lay rigid, experiencing the sequel to the pain, an ideal terror. For, as before on several occasions, she was overwhelmed with the knowledge that the pain had been consummated in the vessel of her mind, and for the moment the vessel was unbeautiful, She thought, quailing of those plastic folds as palpable as the fingers of locked hands containing in their very cells, their fissures, their repulsive hemispheres, the mind, the soul, the inscrutable intelligence. The porter, then, 
like the pink hat and like her mother and the hound's voices, loitered with her. Dr. Nicholas came at nine o'clock to prepare her for the operation. With him came an entourage of white-frocked acolytes, and one of them wheeled in a wagon, on which lay knives and scissors and pincers, cans of swabs and gauze. In the middle of these was a bowl of liquid whose rich purple colour made it seem strange like the brew of an alchemist. All set, the surgeon asked her, smiling. A little nervous, what? I don't blame you. I've often said that I'd rather break a leg than have a sub-mucus resection. Pansy thought for a moment he was going to touch his nose. His approach to her was roundabout. He moved through the yellow light shed by the globe in the ceiling, which gave his forehead a liquid gloss. He paused by the bureau and touched a blossom of cyclamen. He looked out the window and said to no one at all, I couldn't start my car this morning. Came in a cab. Then he came forward. As he came, he removed a speculum from the pocket of his short-sleeved coat, and like a cat inquiring of the nature of a surface with its paws, he put out his hand toward her and drew it back, gently murmuring, "'You must not be afraid, my dear. There is no danger, you know. Do you think for a minute I would operate if there were?' Dr. Nicholas, young, brilliant and handsome, was an aristocrat, a husband, a father, a club man, a Christian, a kind counsellor, and a trustee of his preparatory school. Like many of the medical profession, even those whose specialty was centred on the organ of the basest sense, he interested himself in the psychology of his patients. In several instances, for example, he had found that severe attacks of sinusitis were coincident with emotional crises. Miss Vanneman more than ordinarily captured his fancy since her skull had been fractured and her behaviour throughout had been so extraordinary that he felt he was observing at first hand some of the results of shock. That incommensurable element which frequently were too subtle to see. There was, for example, the matter of her complete passivity during a lumbar puncture, reports of which were written down in her history and were enlarged upon for him by Dr. Rivers' intern who had been in charge. Except for a tremor in her throat and a deepening of pallor, there were no signs at all that she was aware of what was happening to her. She made no sound, did not close her eyes nor clench her fists. She had several punctures. Her only reaction had been to the very first one the morning after she had been brought in. When the intern explained to her that he was going to drain off cerebrospinal fluid which was pressing against her brain, she exclaimed, my God! But it was not an exclamation of fear. The young man had been unable to name what it was he had heard in her voice. He could only say that it had not been fear as he had observed it in other patients. Dr. Nicholas wondered about her. 
there was no way of guessing whether she had always had a nature of so tolerant and undemanding a complexion. It gave him a melancholy pleasure to think that before her accident she had been high-spirited and loquacious. He was moved to think that perhaps she had been a beauty, and that when she had first seen her face in the looking-glass she had lost all joy in herself. It was very difficult to tell what the face had been, for it was so bruised and swollen, so hacked up and lopsided. The black stitches, the length of the nose, across the saddle, across the cheekbone, showed that there would be some unsightly scars. He had ventured once to give her the name of a plastic surgeon, but she had only replied with a vague, refusing smile. He had hoisted a manly shoulder and said, You're the doctor. Much as he pondered, coming to no conclusions about what went on inside that pitiable skull, he was, of course, far more interested in the nose, deranged so badly that it would require his topmost skill to restore its function to it. He would be obliged not only to make a submucous resection, a simple run-of-the-mill operation, but to remove the vomer, always a delicate task, but further complicated in this case by the proximity of the bone to the frontal fracture line, which conceivably was not entirely closed. If it were not, and he operated too soon, and if a cold germ then found its way into the opening, his patient would be carried off by meningitis in the twinkling of an eye. He wondered if she knew in what potential danger she lay. He desired to assure her that he had brought his craft to its nearest perfection and that she had nothing to fear of him. But feeling that she was perhaps both ignorant and unimaginative and that such consolation would create a fear rather than dispel one, he held his tongue and came nearer to the bed. Watching him... Pansy could already feel the prongs of his pliers opening her nostrils for the insertion of his fine probers. The pain he caused her with his instruments was of a different kind from that she felt unaided. It was a naked, clean and vivid pain that made her faint and ill and made her wish to die. Once she had fainted, as he ruthlessly explored her and after she was brought around, he continued until he had finished his investigation. The memory of this outrage had afterwards several times made her cry. This morning she looked at him and listened to him with hatred. Filling her eyes upon the middle of his high, protuberant brow, she imagined the clutter behind it and she despised its obtuse imperfection. In his bland unawareness, this nobody, this nose bigot, was about to play with fire, and she wished him ill. He said, I can't blame you. No, I expect you're not looking forward to our little party. But you'll be glad to breathe again. He stationed his lieutenants. The intern stood opposite him on the left side of his bed. The surgical nurse wheeled the wagon within easy reach of his hands and stood beside it. Another nurse stood at the foot of his bed. A third drew the shades at the windows and attached a blinding light that shone down on the patient hotly, 
and then she left the room, softly closing the door. Pansy stared at the silver ribbon tied in a great bow round the green crepe paper of one of the flower pots. It made her realize for the first time that one of the days she had lain here had been Christmas, but she had no time to consider this strange and thrilling fact, for Dr. Nicholas was genially explaining his anaesthetic. He would soak packs of gauze in the purple fluid, a cocaine solution, and he would place them in her nostrils, leaving them there for an hour. He warned her that the packing would be disagreeable, he did not say painful, but that it would be well worth a few minutes of discomfort not to be in the least sick after the operation. He asked her if she were ready, and when she nodded her head, he adjusted the mirror on his forehead and began. At the first touch of his speculum, Pansy's fingers mechanically bent to the palms of her hands, and she stiffened. He said, A pack, Miss Kennedy, and Pansy closed her eyes. There was a rush of plunging pain as he drove the sodden gobbet of gauze high up into her nose, and something bitter burned in her throat so that she retched. The doctor paused a moment, and the surgical nurse wiped Pansy's mouth. He returned to her with another pack, pushing it with his bodkin doggedly until it lodged against the first. Stop! Stop! cried all her nerves, wailing along the surface of her skin. The coats that covered them were torn off, and they shuddered like naked people, screaming, Stop! Stop! But Dr. Nicholas did not hear. Time and again he came back with a fresh pack and did not pause at all until one nostril was finished. She opened her eyes and saw him wipe the sweat off his forehead and saw the dark intern bending over her, fascinated. Miss Kennedy bathed her temples in ice water and Dr. Nichols said, There, it won't be much longer. I'll tell them to send you some coffee, though I'm afraid you won't be able to taste it. Ever drink coffee with chicory in it? I have no use for it. She snatched at his irrelevancy, and, though she had never tasted chicory, she said severely, I love it. Dr. Nicholas chuckled. De Gustibus. Ready? A pack, Miss Kennedy. The second nostril was harder to pack since the other side was now distended, and this passage was anyhow much narrower, as narrow, he had once remarked, as that in the nose of an infant. In such pain as passed all language, and even the farthest fetched analogies, she turned her eyes inward, thinking that under the obscuring cloak of the surgeon's pain, she could see her brain without the knowledge of its keeper. But Dr. Nicholas and his aides would give her no peace. They surrounded her with murmuring and their foot shuffling and the rustling of their starched uniforms, and her eyelids continually flew back in embarrassment and mistrust. She was claimed entirely by this present meaningless pain, and suddenly and sharply she forgot what she had meant to do. 
she was aware of nothing but her ascent to the summit of something. What it was she did not know, whether it was a tower or a peak or Jacob's ladder. Now she was an abstract word. Now she was a theorem of geometry. Now she was a kite flying, a top spinning, a prism flashing, a kaleidoscope turning. But none of the others in the room could see inside, and when the surgeon was finished, the nurse at the foot of the bed said, Now you must take a look in the mirror. It's simply too comical. And they all laughed intimately like old fast friends. She smiled politely and looked at her reflection. Over the gruesomely fattened snout, her scarlet eyes stared in fixed reproach upon her upturned lips, grey with bruises. But even in its smile of betrayal, the mouth itself was puzzled. It reminded her that something had been left behind, but she could not recall what it was. She was hollowed out and was as dry as a white bone. They strapped her ankles to the operating table and put leather nooses round her wrists. Over her head was a mirror with a thousand facets in which she saw a thousand travesties of her face. At her right side was the table, shrouded in white, where lay the glittering blades of the many knives thrusting out fitful rays of light. All the cloth was frosty. Everything was white or silver and as cold as snow. Dr. Nicholas, a tall snowman with silver eyes and silver fingernails, came into the room soundlessly, for he walked on layers and layers of snow that deadened his footsteps. Behind him came the intern, a smaller snowman, less impressively proportioned. At the foot of the table, a snow figure put her frozen hands upon Pansy's helpless feet. The doctor plucked the packs from the cold, numb nose. His laugh was like a cry on a bitter, still night. "'I will show you now,' he called across the expanse of snow, "'that you can feel nothing.' The pincers bit at nothing snapped at the air and cracked a nerveless icicle. Pansy called back and heard her own voice echo, I feel nothing. Here the walls were grey, not tan. Suddenly the face of the nurse at the foot of the table broke apart and Pansy first thought it was in grief. But it was a smile and she said, Did you enjoy your coffee? Down the grey corridors of the maze, the words rippled, ran like mice, birds, broken beads. Did you enjoy your coffee, your coffee, your coffee? Similarly, once in another room that had also had grey walls, the same voice had said, Shall I give her some whisky? She was overcome with gratitude that this young woman... How pretty she was with her white hair and her white face and her china-blue eyes had been with her that first night and was with her now. In the great stillness of the winter, the operation began. The knives carved snow. 
Pansy was happy. She had been given a hypnotic just before they came to fetch her, and she would have gone to sleep had she not enjoyed so much this trickery of Dr. Nicholas, whom now she tenderly loved. There was a clock in the operating room, and from time to time she looked at it. An hour passed. The snowman's face was melting. Drops of water hung from his fine nose, but his silver eyes were as bright as ever. Her love was returned, she knew. He loved her nose exactly as she loved his knives. She looked at her face in the domed mirror and saw how the blood had streaked her lily-white cheeks and had stained her shroud. She returned to the private song. Did you enjoy your coffee? Your coffee. At the half-hour, a murmur, anguin and slumbrous, came to her, and only when she had repeated the words twice did they engrave their meaning upon her. Dr. Nicholas said, "'Stand back now, nurse. I'm at this girl's brain, and I don't want my elbow jogged.' <laughs> Instantly Pansy was alive. Her strapped ankles arched angrily, her wrists strained against their bracelets. She jerked her head, and she felt the pain flare. She had made the knife slip. "'Be still!' cried the surgeon. "'Be quiet, please!' He had made her remember what it was she had lost when he had rammed his gauze into her nose. She bustled like a housewife to shut the door. She thought, I must hurry before the robbers come. It would be like the time Mother left the cellar door open and the robber came and took, of all things, the terrarium. Dr. Nicholas was whispering to her. He said in the voice of a lover, If you can stand it five minutes more, I can perform the second operation now, and you won't have to go through this again. What do you say? She did not reply. It took her several seconds to remember why it was her mother had set such store by the terrarium, and then it came to her that the bishop's widow had brought her an herb from Palestine to put it in. The intern said, "'You don't want to have your nose packed again, do you?' The surgical nurse said, "'She's a good patient, isn't she, sir?' "'Never had better,' replied Dr. Nicholas. "'But don't call me sir. "'You must be a Canadian to call me sir.' The nurse at the foot of the bed said, "'I'll order some more coffee for you.' "'How about it, Miss Vanneman?' said the doctor. "'Shall I go ahead?' She debated. Once she had finally fled the hospital and fled Dr. Nicholas, nothing could compel her to come back. Still, she knew that the time would come when she could no longer live in seclusion. She must go into the world again and must be equipped to live in it. She banally acknowledged that she must be able to breathe, and finally... Though the world to which she would return remain unreal, she gave the surgeon her permission. He now had to penetrate regions that were not anaesthetized, and this he told her frankly, but he said that there was no danger at all. 
he apologized for the slip of the tongue he had made. In point of fact, he had not been near her brain. It was only a figure of speech. He began. The knives ground and carved and curried and scoured the wounds they made. The scissors clipped hard gristle and the scalpels chipped off bone. It was as if a tangle of tiny nerves were being cut dexterously, one by one. The pain writhed spirally and came to her, who was a pink bird and sat on the top of a cone. The pain was a pyramid made of a diamond. It was an intense light. It was the hottest fire, the coldest chill, the highest peak, the fastest force, the furthest reach the newest time. It possessed nothing of her, but its one infinitesimal scene. Beyond the screen, as thin as gossamer, the brain trembled for its life, hearing the knives hunting like wolves outside, sniffing and snapping. Mercy! Mercy! cried the scalped nerves. At last, Miraculously, she turned her eyes inward, tranquilly. Dr. Nicholas had said, The worst is over, I'm going to work on the floor of your nose. And at his signal she closed her eyes, and this time, and this time alone she saw her brain lying in a shell-pink satin case. It was a pink pearl, no bigger than a needle's eye, but it was so beautiful and so pure that its smallness made no difference. Anyhow, as she watched, it grew. It grew larger and larger until it was an enormous bubble that contained the surgeon and the whole room within its rosy luster. In a long-ago summer, she had often been absorbed by the spectacle of flocks of yellow birds that visited a cedar tree, and she remembered that everything that summer had been some shade of yellow. One year of childhood, her mother had frequently taken her to have tea with an aged schoolmistress, upon whose mantelpiece there was a herd of ivory elephants. That had been the white year. There was a green spring, when early in April she had seen a grass snake on a boulder, but the very summer that followed was violet, for Vetch took her mother's garden. She saw a swatch of blue tulle lying in a raffia basket on the front porch of Uncle Marion's brown house. Never before had the world been pink, whatever else it had been. Or had it been one other time? She could not be sure, and she did not care. Of one thing she was certain. Never had the world enclosed her before, and never had the quiet been so smooth. For only a moment the busybodies left her to her ecstasy, and then, impatient and gossiping, they forced their way inside, slashing at her resisting trance with questions and congratulations, with statements of fact and jokes. Later, she said to them, dumbly, later on, perhaps, I am busy now, but their voices would not go away. They touched her washing her face with clothes so cold they stung, stroking her wrists with firm antiseptic fingers. The surgeon, squeezing her arm with avuncular pride, said, Good girl, as if she were a bright dog that had retrieved a bone. 
her silent mind abused them. You are a thief, it said. You are heartless, and you should be put to death. But he was leaving, adjusting his coat with an air of vain glory, and the intern, abject with admiration, followed him from the operating room, smiling like a silly boy. Shortly after, they took her back to her room. The weather changed, not much for the better. Momentarily, the sun emerged from its concealing murk, but in a few minutes the snow came with a wind that promised a blizzard. There was great pain, but since it could not serve her, she rejected it, and she lay as if in a hammock in a pause of bitterness. She closed her eyes, shutting herself up within her treasureless head.